From Maintain Media, this is Digital Frontiers, a show about the people pioneering the digital economy in Asia. For show notes, visit us at maintainmedia.com. Hi, I'm Michael Walters. And this is Andrew Roth. This week on the show, we have our first female entrepreneur, Alexis Horowitz-Burdick, who is the founder and CEO of Luxola.com, which was recently acquired by LVMH. Alexis is uh, a straight shooter. She goes into detail on how she got to initial traction, leveraging influencers and SEM. She's also uh, has specific opinions about company culture uh, and venture capital. What do you think about the show? I really like the way that she started off getting to MVP, uh, leveraging outside help, and uh, specifically how she managed to find her CTO. Great. Let's get into the show. So, uh, Alexis, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, Thanks for having me. um, I think we met maybe three plus years ago. I've been definitely looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, Tell us why you started Luxola.com. Yeah, so I started Luxola, what would be four years ago in April, so we're a couple weeks away from It's been four years. It's been four years since we It's crazy. Uh, Yeah, because we met kind of right when I started it. Um, So, yeah, before Luxola, I had another um, startup, uh, which was called The Sweet Spot, which was in the group buying space, Um, and we, you know, I started that company and realized pretty quickly that that was going to be an incredibly hard um, market to succeed in. And I think, you know, that's played out over the past few years <laughs> um, with what you've seen with, you know, Groupon and um, and Living Social and those companies. So after about six months of starting that company, I had the opportunity to um, exit it to a Chinese group buying site. Uh, so I took that opportunity um, but afterwards, I was super enamored with e-commerce in Southeast Asia, uh, and I wanted to start another venture. Um, and looking at you know the region and looking at what I wanted to be our value proposition, I wanted to do something that wasn't focused on price as the core differentiator, uh, because I'd already done that and seen sort of how hard that was. And wanted to really focus on a single category where I thought we could create you know really great content, really great customer service, really strong selection of product, um, and beauty became super apparent as a space that was really underserved in the sort of mid to high end for women in Southeast Asia. Because um, that's, that's another thing we have in common is that yeah. we both started our own group buying type of companies, mm-hmm. exited them around the same time. Yep. Um, you went into the e-commerce route, which I think is great. What what lessons from the sweet spot yeah. do you think you took with you into Luxola? Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me out of the sweet spot was, um, let's say, was really that, that price competition as your core differentiator. Um, you know, I think a lot of people that came out of the, let's say, group buying space have now moved into the marketplace space. Um, and those two models are, or the flash or the flash sale space, right? And those models are not significantly different in that what the customer ultimately wants is, is, is the best value, right? Um, and so then, you know, you have to, you're working with really thin margins, you're working, um, on having customer service that, you know, hopefully will keep customers with you, but at the same time, you really have to make it all about price. Um, and so for me, the biggest lesson I learned is that I don't love that kind of business model, right? I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be Walmart. I don't want to have to sell, you know, a million widgets every day at a, at a 2% margin so that, you know, I can build a successful company. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm, I realized coming out of this week thought that I'm an entrepreneur that likes creating more of a community that likes more engaging content that likes, you know, a very sticky, uh, platform or, or segment, you know, where you can really build long-term relationships with customers and add value through other things just besides the, you know, the, the transaction. The five cents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, those were the big lessons for me coming out of, out of the sweet spot. You talk about marketing and content marketing, building communities. There's a lot of sort of chatter about content marketing as being the, the new thing. Yeah. What do you do right now at Luxola? Are you big on blogs or what's a, what kind of content are pumping out right now? So we have an awesome content team and they're super creative and they're always trying different things. Um, a huge part of our content strategy is obviously on our site, right? Um, and that lies within, you know, the review sections. Any, anybody who purchases a product can review that product, good or bad. Um, so we have a lot of, let's say, consumer-driven content in that way, which I think is highly informative for customers. On the flip side of that, we also have lxedit.com, which is uh, Luxola's magazine, essentially. Um, and that site has been just gaining so much traction over the last year. Um, you know, that's really a destination for women to find out about trends in beauty, to find out, you know, sort of how-tos, to find out what's new in skincare or what skincare might be best for them. What about, um, what about guys? I was going to say there's some great <laughs> men's articles on there. We're not totally ignoring the men. Um, and that's not so much of a, you know, it's not, it's separate from Luxola. So it's really for us to help, you know, build trust with consumers, help get the name up, you know, the Luxola name out. Um, you know, showcase our brands, uh, but really be a point of information uh, as well as, you know, sort of what's what's new in the space. So, um, yeah, so those are the two things, you know, sort of we do on Luxola and Alex Edit. And then we work a huge amount with outside content creators, right? Whether that's lifestyle bloggers, beauty bloggers, um, YouTube personalities, influencers of all kind. We have fantastic relationships. I think we work with something like a thousand um, influencers across the region. So, um, and you source those relationships. Directly? We do, yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. There's some other companies now that do that full time, but um, I think it's always been like a pretty core part of Luxola's DNA is, is kind of being close to the people that um, you know set trends, that set influence, that you know they're really passionate. Women are super passionate about about beauty. Um, so for us, it's just another way to understand what's meaningful to our customers, what's mm-hmm. meaningful to the groups that you know. That they influence, etc. Because that I get asked a lot about is things like how'd you get for your first ten thousand users, hundred thousand users, two hundred thousand users. I think a lot of people who haven't started their own company wonder about user acquisition. Was that part of your initial strategy? Is to adopt develop relationships directly with influencers? It wasn't initial, actually. Um, if I look back, it would have been you know, much more beneficial for us to have, have had such a focus on it probably a bit earlier. Um, but it, you know, we certainly, you know, we worked with a blogger here and there, right? But it wasn't as, as much of a part of our daily strategy like it is now. Okay. And let's take a step back to when you did start. Like, what? tell us a story on how you got to your MVP, mm-hmm. initial traction, or even initial funding. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess I am maybe a little bit different in other people in that I came out of a, of a startup that, you know, I sort of 
was able to exit pretty quickly, but you know, let, I also don't want people to think that that exit was something phenomenal. I basically got back what I put into the company, so I had like a zero balance right <laughs> by the time I was done. Right. So I needed to figure out what I was going to do, um, and so I jumped pretty fast and furiously into the next thing. Right, um, I, you know, I literally sort of had the idea about Luxola and started thinking about it. Um, you know, and within a couple of days, I took that idea to a friend of mine that I had worked with and mm. in a previous startup in the U.S., um, and he said, I love it, I'll give you money for it right now, uh, and then I went and talked to two other people, and they said, okay, yeah, yeah we'll give you some money. So, um, so Angel, Angel. Yeah, so I mean, the idea inception of the company, the fundraising and the formation of the company all happened within a week, right? It wasn't like a like a long, you know, strategic plan, here's what we're going to do, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, you know, I guess I was fortunate in that way and that I was able to like get things going pretty quickly. Um, do you think that's uncommon? I think if you have built a couple of companies, which in my case going into Luxola, this is my third startup. So before that I had a sweet spot. And then before that I was the first employee in a U.S. based startup and I moved to Asia to start our Asia operations. I was their head of Asia for a few years. Um, so I think if, if, you know, you've started a few things, you probably have a network of, you know, angels around you of people, you know, who can, who can fund ideas. Um, you know, and I think at that point, like if you've got something that they think is interesting, I don't think it's terribly hard to, to bring in, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, if it's your first time, it's definitely a different situation because you have to go out and build that, that network and that community of people to raise money from. So so yeah, so we got the money in the bank, and then I was like, oh no, I need a website. I'm not an engineer. What am I going to do? <laughs> and so I decided um, that we would build our own platform, um, I think, especially back then, four years ago, because sort of existing pre-built e-commerce platforms wouldn't solve the problems that we were looking to solve you know, from a back-end perspective in the region. So we worked with what was then Pivotal, what is now Neo, um, I think, who... Um, our, my deal with them was, okay, we'll hire you, but you have to find my full-time engineer before we start working. So, um, because I knew that I didn't want to be left at the end without a full-time engineer for the company, right? So, it was a great deal with them um, because it made them essentially source somebody that they thought was, you know, a very high quality and, and caliber. Um, and so, he worked on the project with them. Um, until the MVP launched, and then I had you know somebody in house from day one who was totally familiar with what was going on. So and I think um, that's critical. Yeah. I mean, for people who don't know what Pivotal Labs is, or yeah. now it's called yeah. Neo, they're they're not just an outsource your project or tech team yeah. company. They will actually help you find people, yeah. um, uh, bring them up, teach yeah. them the best practices, and then they hand them over to you Absolutely. with a very strong foundation of your initial stack or code set. Exactly. exactly. And now what's happened to the person that he's they, now my CTO. He's been with me since day one. Um, they, I think back then they didn't hire fresh graduates and they had interviewed him and they really liked him, but they just, I guess it's just a pol or I don't know if it anymore is anymore, but it was a policy. Um, and that was basically like the biggest stroke of luck that ever came because the guy's brilliant and mm -hmm. he's like a fantastic, you know, CTO. A, 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 you know, critical decision. Yeah. I remember you telling me about yeah. that a long time ago and thinking, oh, that sounds so expensive. <laughs> but you know, what's more expensive is not starting with a strong foundation. Yeah. Yeah. 
doing refactor projects and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for us, at least working in Ruby, having a very clean, you know, sort of code base that we started from from day one. I mean, obviously now it's, it's you know exponentially bigger, um, and the whole stack is much bigger. But um, you know, I think I think it's not a bad way to go. Is you know, if you have a little bit of money to spend on on somebody that can help you set it up right the first time. Because before that, in the sweet spot, you know, we did the sort of outsourced to India thing, and not that that necessarily needs to be bad, but I think the mantra of you know you you pay for what you get um, is very very true in engineering outsourcing, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's true in design, it's true in, in engineering. Um, so you know, it's a decision you have to make based on resources. So you started off, you didn't have a technical co-founder. You found no. it was just Pivotal Labs no. to yep. yeah. So you had your initial engineer, your foundation, your code was done. That allowed you to scale. What were your next few major hires? Yeah. Um, my first hires, to be honest, were all, were all more jack of all trades type of people rather than super specific expertise. Right. Except for obviously the the person that now is my CTO, right? Because that's something that I just, you know, couldn't do. Um, I'm good at sales and marketing. Um, ultimately I'm not great at like finance and I'm so, so at operations. So as we got bigger, I saw that, you know, okay, you know, we need a full-time finance or accounting person. And then ultimately a CFO, we need a full-time you know, sort of person that's going to start building the operations and logistics side and, and ultimately become our COO. Um, but at the beginning, it was more, it's funny, when you're really small, you need people who are really capable at a, at a bunch of different things and can do them quickly. And then for me, it's been like, once we got over, you know, sort of maybe 80 people or so, maybe 60 people, um, there was a tipping point of you don't really need so many of those people anymore, which is kind of unfortunate, mm-hmm. but you need people who are very specific in what they do and very good at that, right? Deep, deeper. Yeah, so it's this funny trade-off that happens, like, mm-hmm. in the middle of somehow our growth stage um, that... You know, a few people, of course, that can do a lot of different things are always great, mm-hmm. but you can't have a whole company of just people that are like generally good at stuff, mm-hmm. but don't have like deep expertise in one thing. But describe what, what kind of characteristics would you look for yeah. in that general kind of person? Bucket, yeah. yeah. I think in general, look for people who are really different than you. Um, so in fact, I had hired a person to work for the sweet spot um, and she started and then I decided to sell the company and decided to start Luxola all in the same week. So, you know, I ended up having an interesting conversation with her that was like, hey, bad news is there's no more company that I just got you a job at. The good news is I would like you to come work for me at this new one. And, you know, luckily she she was very flexible and, you know, she did a lot of our early marketing and, um, you know, I think has a very different viewpoint than I did, which is great. Um, you know, yeah, typically I think when you're looking for all-arounders, just look for ones that aren't exactly the same as you because then that doesn't give you much of a base for debate within the organization. Mm-hmm. And I think debate is something you need when you're when you're early stage to, to be able to grow. So so people that aren't afraid to speak up yeah. or kind of that scrappy mm-hmm. mindset kind of jump Definitely in and get it done. Definitely scrappy mindset, yeah. get stuff done will see things that need to be done and just take the initiative to do them themselves. You definitely want to walk a line, or at least I think you do, between people that speak their mind and people that want to control the company. If you if you're a founder, if you're a, you know, if you have two of you 
you don't necessarily need to hire a third co-founder, right? Um, you know, you do need people to, to do what you ask them to, to some degree. Right. But you also want people who say, like, oh, I think I can make this better. Or I think, what about what if we did this? Or, you know, people who are excited about the idea, the vision, um, and maybe just think slightly differently than you do. So you've had some of these people that, that got you up to 80 people yeah. that were your superstars that yeah. are still with the company? Um, no. Okay. Um, so you've had yeah. some sort yeah. of... Uh, I guess, evolution of the skill sets yeah, that you yeah. need. And we're not talking about all of them. Yeah. Many of them still are, you know, yeah. in design, they're all still here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, a, but a couple of those people that were, were more jack-of-all-trades, I think it, it becomes challenging for you because they're, they're not, let's say, deep enough in terms of expertise for, mm-hmm. you, for you to say, okay, you now run this, right. right? And you're getting too big to allow them to work on everything because mm-hmm. that doesn't suit, you know, the sort of development and processes mm-hmm. and things like that. So I feel like it's it was definitely not a bad goodbye with anyone, though, right, but right. It, it's sort of a natural thing that I think, at least for us, you graduate to different... I mean, we're talking about two or three people. It's not sure, like, you know. sure, sure, sure. <laughs> what about, okay, so now that... You're, how many people are in the company right now? I think we're 120 full time across all of our markets, and then we probably have another like 40 to 50 people that are on a part time basis with us, okay. whether it's in the warehouse or driving or content. So. Yeah. So uh, the the one word that comes up a lot in startup conversations is mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. Right. Don't don't get it wrong. Cultivate it. What what do you, what's your take on the startup culture mantra or how you develop it or yeah, what's your overall take on that? I don't know. I guess I'm very, um, I'm very cynical when it comes to that. I think, uh, if, if people would worry more about building their company and getting the work done and less about, you know, whether or not everybody was having fun or had the right culture, whatever, you know, that means, uh, that your culture will develop out of that naturally. We've never thought about it internally. Um, I think if you probably asked everybody, they would probably use the same adjectives, but, um, but it's not something that we're super focused on. Right. I mean, for me, I'm the kind of person that likes to get work done. Work is work and it doesn't need to be you know, your whole life. Some startups, you know, they, you're there 24 hours a day. It's you live it, you breathe it, it's everything. For me, you know, I have been in startups like that and I, I burned out really quickly. So with Flotilla, I wanted people that would work really hard, but I wanted to give them the freedom to do that when and where they pleased. So we've always had open work hours. We've always had open holiday and sick leave. So you don't need to you don't need to tell me when you're coming in to work or where you're going or what time you're going home. You don't need, I mean, you need to tell me if you're going to be off for two weeks because it yeah. affects the organization, but I don't really care if you do it four times a year. Um, it doesn't bother me. So I think that inherently has built a culture of, let's say, both hard work and trust um, amongst colleagues. Um, so we tend to attract people that are clear about what they're there to do. They want to get their work done um, because I'm not a person that values like FaceTime at the office. Like we don't have a ping pong table in the office because I don't want somebody playing ping pong for an hour and then staying there till 10 PM and being like, yeah, I was here till midnight. Like, yeah. Cause you were playing games for four hours. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, you know, I guess that whole culture thing. And I think that very much comes from the Valley as well. Like I'm not here to throw a party and be your best friend. Like I'm here to build a company that we're all excited about and, um, I hope that people enjoy coming to work every day, and I think that they do. But I think that's different from um, you know. 
Yeah, sort of like compare, you can compare it to sports teams, right? Yeah. Where and when you're winning and numbers are going up and the record speaks for itself or the product speaks for itself and team speaks for itself yeah. and every that's an almost sudden culture is really amazing, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, a great exactly, culture. Right? And yeah. then if you're losing, the then terrible, right? everyone, yeah, yeah, the culture is bad. That's the thing. Right. I mean, if you think about like companies where you're like, oh, their culture is incredible, I think it probably also developed organically and it's because they've done really well, right? Not because they they sat down and they were like, you know, I'm sure like, you know, Bill Gates wasn't like, day one, what shall the company yeah. culture be? Like, I think it's this very weird, funny new idea. Yeah. I, I think I'm lean more on your side where yeah. it, it emanates from what the founder values yeah. Yeah. and it'll organically grow yeah. from there. I love this quote from Mark Cuban where he said, Basically, when it comes to culture, sales cures all. Yeah. So right. it's just, I mean, you know, at yeah. the end of the day, you're a startup, you have to grow. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, if we, have, if we have a culture, like, the only culture I would say we have is one of performance. Right. Like, <laughs> your startup. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> like, uh, there will be no more company if that's not our core cultural value. Right. So, so speaking of sales, yeah. is that a core KPI you have in front of everyone or, you know, what, what's your take on dashboards or numbers? What, what do you, what do you value there? Yeah. I mean, the different teams definitely have different KPIs. Um, you know, I'm sure some of them are super obvious given that we're in e-commerce, right? You know, we're looking constantly looking at AOV and how we drive that up. We're looking at, you know, our, our CPA, our cost of acquisition. Um, and then, you know, of course, uh, you know, GMV and revenue numbers are, are highly important along with, um, you know, for us, since we hold inventory, you know, margin and, mm-hmm. and ultimately how we move towards being a profitable company, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not trying to, uh, we're not trying to not make money forever, right? It's not what we're really interested in. So, um, so the whole company is, you know, we're really transparent about that kind of stuff. I think it's important for everybody to understand, you know, how we're trying to grow each month and, and we send out updates, you know, sort of on a weekly basis about where we are, what the gap to our goal is mm-hmm. every week in terms of revenue and, um, you know, I think that creates, you know, sort of both acknowledgement and responsibility across the company for people to be proactive, even if it's not their direct job, right? Like, you know, my, my junior designer is not in charge of the revenue number, right? Um, but she might be like, well, like, what if we switch this around or, you know, I know we can do this promotion or that, you know, everybody has ideas in the company. So I think if you're transparent um, about your goals, whatever they may be, right? For us, it, it you know, happens to be sort of revenues and, and numbers driven, but it can be really beneficial. Yeah, I mean, the, you get a lot of ideas the, the nice thing with yeah. e-commerce is that the the standard KPIs are, are out there. People yeah, are aware like of what clear they are. Yeah, it's clear what you need to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, on marketing channels, yeah. are you at the point where you're acquiring new users organically as the majority? Like, are you, are you SEO? Is it through the influencers that you've developed yeah. relationships with? So our SEO, you know, sort of, let's say development, which I think we started heavily sort of like 18 months ago, maybe closer to two years, um, is now really starting to pay off. So, um, you know, I think it's funny. Somebody the other day was like sort of asking me for advice and she said, oh, you know, but I did SEO for like two months and then it didn't work. So I stopped doing it. And I was like, well, yeah, that's the point. Like it takes, it's, you know, it's a marathon. You, you only sort of, it's a marathon with a sprint with SEO, right? So, um, to ultimately, you know, start having more. So the answer for us is no, we still spend 
more money, you know, acquiring customers than we do organically. That said, our organic is ramping up a lot. It's just in terms of the scale of where we want to be. We're going to spend marketing dollars to acquire customers for some time, right? Sure. So, um, you know, that number will continue to grow right alongside, um, you know, paid paid acquisition, um, and and then at some point, right, when we when we sort of hit the tipping point profit, profitability, that number will really take over. So, um, but we'll have reached a scale by then where we can afford to do that. Yeah, and it seems like in terms of paid acquisition, uh, I'd say certain Facebook ads mm-hmm. are cheaper than other streams yeah. uh, AdWords you know you have the right have to have the right approach to that do you do all that in-house or do you have an agency no almost everything that Luxella does is in-house um, we don't have an agency for anything the only place we work with like some freelance writers for the magazine um, but other than that it's all in-house our entire SEM team, which runs all paid advertising, you know, whether we're talking about social or, or AdWords or any SEM, basically, um, is, a, is an awesome team um, of 15 um, that sits in Jakarta um, and has the whole top floor of our office there. We call it the, the boys' club. <laughs> um, and they just kill it. They're amazing. Uh, it's, it's really a fantastic team. Uh, 15 people dedicated to yeah, all paid. paid acquisition. Great. Okay, some rapid-fire questions. Okay. What do you use to organize yourself every day? <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I use my calendar, right? Okay. Uh, yay, Google products. Like, Google, okay, yeah. so you're on so Google. Google Calendar um, is how I input all my meetings, and um, I don't organize, like, email or anything. I'm, like, so... I don't, I don't do any of it. I don't use like any products. I'm terrible. What about the team? Are you using Slack, any work chat type of apps nope. or, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm like, just, I just like go over and talk to them. That's good. So, that's good. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, any dashboard tools you're using? We are heavy on GA. Um, uh, so we use a lot of dashboards. We also use RJ metrics, um, hmm. which I'm a fan of. Uh, that helps me, for sure, I'm a more visual person than I am numbers, really visualize uh, how the business is, is, is changing. Hmm. RJ Metrics. RJ Metrics. Yeah, they're great, yeah. especially for any e-commerce company or any, any sort of online-focused company there. I would definitely check them out. All right, so you know, maybe just tell us how do we find more about you or any events or new things coming up in yeah. the future. Well, go to Luxella. <laughs> yeah. um, I hope if, if you haven't checked it out yet, you do. We have wonderful things for both men and women. Yeah, there are uh, men's products. There are. And um, yeah, for me, I to be honest, I'm just trying to be super heads down at Luxella right now. Um, and I think for that reason, I don't have like speaking engagements or anything coming up. But uh, yeah, look, I'm always like willing to talk to people. I do tend to like make a lot of time for people that like want to talk. So you know, I'm everywhere. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Just find me. Email me. Not hard. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for coming in. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. Digital Frontiers was produced by Andrew Roth and me, Michael Walters. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, please go to our website at maintainmedia.com and leave a comment in the show notes. If you want to be notified of future episodes, please sign up for the newsletter.